Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. Thank you for joining us on The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change from business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations. I'm your host, Alyssa Cox, and here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, then let's do it better. And this season, we're focusing specifically on behavior change, what it means to change behavior on your team and in your organization, and how to actually go about it. So I want to jump right in. Kevin, how do you define behavior change? To me, uh, behavior change is when people actually demonstrate that they understand the meaning of, of a team and what it means to be a leader, to guide and direct a team. Behavior change means people are willing to confront themselves and their practices that are out of alignment with high employee engagement and team performance. I love it. Now, for those of you who don't know him, Kevin Herring is a recognized expert in team and business unit turnarounds and the creator of the 90-Day Turnaround, a unique program for turning any work group into a highly engaged, high-performing team in just 90 days. And today, we're here to talk about the importance of employee engagement when it comes to leading sustainable behavior change in the organization. Now, I want to dig in here. You referenced with the meaning of team. What do you mean when you say the meaning of team? So I know it's, it's become kind of a generic term for just a, a group of people or people who work under the same umbrella. But to me, when I refer to a team, I'm usually referring to a group that has common goals, common outcomes. And ultimately, if they don't, should work as an integrated, interdependent group. So all in for the success of the whole, not just everybody kind of in it for themselves, working in silos underneath the same umbrella. And how do you, I mean, if I think about my own experience in corporate America, as I think about some of the challenges around being an integrated team, oftentimes in my experience, it's not that we have different surface goals. Like our big goal is always the same, but it's these little goals, the political goals, the intra-departmental goals that really stand in the way of us working effectively cross-functionally. How do you work with teams who are ostensibly all going in the same direction, but are taking very different paths to get there and getting in each other's way? Yeah, that, well, and that's the problem is when all these other things that you just described become bigger than the overarching goal. So we may have some general overall goals that we're aware of. The company has to be profitable, obviously. The team has to produce something to contribute to that and so on. But you know, think of most organizations when they go through the exercise of putting a a vision and a mission statement, all that kind of thing. And you ask employees, what is it? What is your company vision? What is your mission statement? And they don't know. They can't even tell you. And somebody will say, well, I think I remember it being posted in the front when people come in. And it's the what I call the post print and pray method of employee engagement. You know, you come up with this thing, you put you post it and pray that somebody remembers it, pays attention to it, and acts on it. And you know, we're looking at something bigger than that because what happens is people go to work for a team or in, in an organization. And what happens is that if there's a mentality that everybody sort of has their own resources that they're competing for from other people, you know, that the organization is in a competitive mode, there are limited, finite resources. And uh, so people start talking about things like copy machines. My department owns the copy machine. You know, that's my office space. That's my forklift, you know, that kind of thing, as if they paid for it out of their own pocket. 
when that happens, you can see that people are working in silos. They're not focused on the overall goal. And a lot of the petty bickering and the arguments, the things that go on in, in businesses happen because people aren't focused on the good of the whole and the overarching goals. Those other things need to become subservient to that. And so that's where the focus has to be is what's getting in the way of us, each of us as individuals and as groups, as teams, from laying everything else aside to focus on that bigger overarching goal for the good of all of us. And how do we bring people as we think about being part of an organization and part of a part of the mission, as opposed to just sort of a, a cog with a set of skills, how do we encourage people to work differently? How do we encourage people to step perhaps outside their comfort zone and the way they've always done things and and change their behavior for the good of the mission, for the good of the company or for the good of our objective? Great question. Think about the traditional organization and who really owns the understanding of the whole business. It's the people at the top, top of the organizational pyramid. They have the knowledge, they have the information coming in, and they have the controls about how things are going to get done. And they delegate and push that down into the organization to lesser and lesser degrees as it moves down to those who are closest to the work, the core work and closest to the customer. That's where things break down because now we're asking the most critical people in the organization, those doing the work, to have the fewest resources, the least control over how the work gets done, how to satisfy a customer, how to fix a problem. So we have to correct that, right? The first thing we have to do, the obvious thing we have to do is make them what we like to say is business literate. We have to give them the information so they have the big picture. They understand why we're in business, what we produce. Some people go to work every day and have no idea what the company produces because they have a little piece of it that nobody's ever explained. And I can give you lots of examples of that. It's just remarkable how much that happens. If we can create context, help people see the big picture, why we're in business, what it takes to stay in business, who our competitors are, you know, how do we stack up against the competition? What are their strengths and weaknesses? What are ours? And what's our strategy for succeeding in a, in a challenging marketplace? You know, those are kinds of things that people need to have to have that overall context of why they're at work and what they're there to accomplish. The next step then is every bit as critical. And that is the connection that people have to the context. In other words, how do I as an individual, how does my team connect to others in the organization relative to that overall context? How do we help each other succeed? And so we start understanding at a more personal level how what I do impacts you and how what you do impacts me. And we can then have conversations about how we can help each other. But here's, here's one of the challenges when a lot of leaders don't even think about this is when they hire people into the organization, they hire somebody based on a, a set of skills they feel like they need to have to fill us an open slot. And they don't create context for that individual as somebody who needs to do more than just come and sit at a desk or sit at a machine and do the same thing over and over. They, they, they don't create context in, as business people. They don't say, no, we're not, we're not hiring you just to, to be an accountant. We're not hiring you just to be an IT person or an HR person or a machine operator or whatever it is you do. We're hiring you to be a business person. We want you to contribute to help us succeed. And so we want you thinking as a business person. To do that, we have to give you context and connection to the business. Right? 
So those things are critical to helping us build a team where people are focused on the greater good. The other piece of that is we think about what is it that breaks teams apart or causes teams to not work well together. And again, the biggest point is that we don't focus on what they need to have in common to be able to help each other. And we don't advocate a service culture, you know, serving each other. We have a demand culture where we take from each other. We compete for resources. We have to build that into the system where we teach people that their responsibility is to think how they can help the person they affect in the organization or the people they affect to do what they need to do. And if everybody does that, we have a service culture, then, then we have people working together in an interdependent way to build something bigger, something bigger than themselves. And so what's interesting here is, as opposed to taking a very prescriptive approach to defining behavior, which is like, instead of putting this number in cell E10, I want you to put it in cell F10. What you're really talking about is driving the right behaviors through attitude and engagement change, right? helping to motivate people to work in the interest of the company toward our mutual objectives, and then giving them the space to do so. How do you talk to managers who perhaps have a hard time with letting go, with letting their people self-direct in this way? Yeah. So the first thing is I always say, you know, whatever you're doing now, you know what it produces. It's easy to see because you're producing it. So if you want to stay at this level, you want to continue to get the results you're getting, just keep doing what you're doing. That, that's a no-brainer. But if you want to change that, you have to look at things differently. You have to do things differently. So managers, leaders in the organization operate out of a sense of belief, intention, and practice. We talk a lot about stance, about what is the leader's stance about people. And that's where it really starts is if your stance is that you have to exert high control and have low trust for people, then what is your intention going to be? Your intention is always going to be to watch and check up on and so on. And your behaviors are going to follow that, right? You're going to be a micromanager. Um, however, if your belief is that people are generally trustworthy, dependable, have a desire to do a good job when they come to work, your intentions are to enable that. And so your practices are then to share information, share control, share decision latitude, and that sort of thing. To push down a lot of the control of how the work gets done to those who are closest to the work, the ones that are doing it. And so we tell people, if you're struggling with that, you know, first you confront your stance. If your stance is high control, low trust, you're never going to have a high-performing team. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> if you want a high-engagement, high-performing team, you have to change to a low-control, high-trust style. And, and so that's where we go as so we teach them what that looks like. Now, a lot of people struggle with that. They, they, find, they say, I, I, don't, I don't believe that people are trustworthy. My experience tells me differently. And we get that. And that's okay. The issue here is, you either are aligned and you move in the direction of low control, high trust, or you take a leap of faith. In other words, you have to give it a chance, a real chance to work for you. And that's what we ask people to do. To what extent, if I'm an individual manager being coached to empower my people, give my people the space to work independently, to work and come up with creative solutions to the problems that we have to achieve our objectives. Mm -hmm. How do I, as an individual manager, then 
balance that with perhaps my organization's attitude toward risk and what I perceive to be sort of bigger cultural pressures around containing risk. Because in my experience, when I run into managers who are micromanagers, they're not micromanagers because they think it's fun, right? They're not micromanagers because actually their day has 27 hours where the rest of us mortals are 24, right? They are actively trying to manage their perceived risk. Mm -hmm. And so how do we think about rebalancing attitudes toward risk on an individual basis and also fitting this empowerment model into organizations where the organization's appetite to risk doesn't match our empowerment message? Great question. So let me give you an example of the, the first situation. We actually do have an organization supportive. And so uh, I worked with a, an organization. We had a vice president of a division who was a serious uh, autocratic command and control dictatorial kind of leader. And um, in his division tended to produce pretty well. He was generally one of the, the top producers. But the executive leadership of that organization overall said, we're not producing at the level we need to produce. And even though your division's doing the best, you know, we, we can't sustain this. We ha- your division has to do better and so does everybody else. So the question is, how are we gonna make that happen? And they decided that they would do it by engaging employees at a higher level, which meant leading a different way. And so they told him there was an expectation that, that he would make the change and they wanted to see how he felt about it. And he said, you gotta be kidding. I've been getting rewarded year after year for 10 years for being the best producer. And you're telling me that's not, that's not good enough now? Uh, you want me to do something totally contrary to my style? How, how am I possibly going to do better if I change how I work? Well, the, the organization was committed to him. They told him, look, we're going to give you all the resources. We'll give you everything you need to be successful, but you have to make the choice. And we're not going to put you into a, a bind where you feel pressured to do something you just aren't committed to doing. So we're gonna, we want to make it really easy for you. And if you decide it's not for you, we've got a really nice package we're going to provide for you so that you can transition to somewhere that will be a better fit for you. But we really do hope you'll stay. And like I said, we are committed to helping you make the change. But bottom line is you do have to make the change. And he worked at it and it was hard. It was contrary to everything he had understood about leading and managing through his his career. And he wasn't just starting his career either. He'd been doing this for decades. But he made the change. He made a dramatic change. It was phenomenal. And others did likewise, and, and the company reaped the benefits of it. Now, some places aren't supportive. You're right. And I've seen plenty of leaders in those situations where they basically have to take the lead in their organizations and be a buffer from the rest of the organization. And so I, I worked with a vice president not too long ago who was, I would say, mistreated. You know, he was beat up, micromanaged, and second guessed. It was just, it was a tough situation. And yet he tried to insulate his team from that. And he went out and he held town hall meetings. He engaged with employees. He uh, got his directors to, to do the same. And, and they created a total shift in culture in that organization and made incredible performance improvements. So I think that a leader can do that. And that's, that's what a leader needs to do. A leader needs to shift their focus from managing the day-to-day and all the decisions that have to be made to get the work out to a more strategic level and be the person who paves the way for the team to be able to accomplish the things they need to 
so that the barriers they can't remove can be removed by those that are higher in the organization, the vice president, the manager, or whoever. How do we, as we think about, about empowerment, how do we strike the balance between empowering people with the lowest levels in the organization to work in the ways that are most effective to achieve our goals? Balance that with not every employee in the organization can have a different vision for what the organization is. Right. There are some things that as an employee, you're a taker. How do you balance that the empowerment message with the need to sort of to fall in line in some cases? Yeah, great question. That's a change management question. Actually, when you think about it, anytime an organization has mandates, which they often do, employees don't always have the ability to shape decisions that come from the executive team because that's their role as executives is to lead the organization strategically. And some of those mandates are strategic uh, mandates. And so they get handed down to the organization. And so how does that how does that get managed? Well, sometimes it's just passed down, cascades down, and now your manager shows up one day and says, okay, we're all going to be implementing this new software and it's going to be uh, a, a challenge, but everybody's got to get on board and figure it out. A better approach for a, a manager would be to say, okay, here's a mandate. Here's why the organization is doing this. And here's the process they went through to make this decision. And here's why it's important and will help us to reach the, our overall uh, business unit goals or business goals, right? Now, the question is, how are we going to implement it? How are we going to execute in this new set of circumstances? And that's where you bring the team in to become co-creators of, of the, the program. You know, instead of having things done to them, getting them engaged so that they can help co-create how it gets implemented. I worked with a client once that had a, called me in, they had a, uh, a new enterprise-wide software systems uh, specific to their industry. And they had all kinds of pushback. It, employees at various sites were saying it didn't work. It was broken. It uh, didn't fit what they needed to do. Uh, I mean, just it was just a lot. There was just a mutiny about the whole thing. And so they asked us, they asked me and said, what did, I'd been working for, with them for a while. And they said, what did we do wrong? What, what happened here? I said, well, you did something to them and they didn't like it. <laughs> so that's what happened. We actually brought uh, representatives of the, the managers from these various areas. They had a meeting. We brought in all the vendors. They did a, a, a little uh, song and dance for them. Everybody got it. And we said, okay, you need to be on board and you need to take it back and get all your staff on board. And they all said they did that. But obviously, it didn't work that way. They said, what, what could we have done differently? And I said, well, let me give you a radical thought. I suggest they, they think about this. What if you had taken representatives, I mean, line workers, people at the front lines who are going to be using this system, and you flew them all into a central location, put them up at a hotel, um, had vendors come and, and, and present and got them involved in the decision. And they said, are you crazy? Do you know how much that would cost? And I said, well, let's see, how many million dollars did you pay for this? What did that cost you? And what are you getting out of it? You're getting nothing, right? So, um, so I, I'm not suggesting you do that for every major decision in the company. All I'm saying is there's value in engaging those who are going to be affected by the decision in some way. They said, well, what do we do now? I said, well, why don't you go back to those people, the end users? And, and have them send representatives, form a committee, send representatives to the corporate headquarters 
and work on evaluating the decision and what needed to be done and give them all the information that you had so they know what to do. Well, they went back and looked at it and the employees came back and said, we would not have chosen the solution you chose. Well, big surprise there, right? (laughs) We would not have chosen that. We don't think that was the best decision, but it wasn't the worst decision either. And we looked at scrapping that and starting over and getting another system. It's way too costly. That just doesn't make sense for the business. So remember, these are frontline employees saying this. And then they came back and they said, well, here's what we think we should do. We think we need to reinstall this and set it up a little differently, but we can make this work. So we'll give you a list of things that we want to change and, and get it reinstalled and, uh, and we'll see how it goes. So that's what they did. And you know what the result was? It was the best system they had ever seen, right? <laughs> right? Because they owned it, right? It was their decision. They had a part in creating it. And so that's, that's the point is look, at, look for ways to engage people even if they're not part of the decision for, for what gets mandated or handed down, get them engaged in, in deciding how to implement it, how to use it in the, in the organization, and let them become co-creators. And they'll own the result a whole lot more than if you don't. Perfect. I love that. Now, I know we're coming up to the end of our time here together, but before we go, what is one more piece of advice that you can give to our listeners for helping shape behavior on their teams and with their business partners? Well, look at your stance about people. If you're a manager, what do you believe about people? And how is that shaping your intentions and your practices? Really take a hard look, confront yourself. And if you're struggling with the notion that you need to relinquish some control and you need to increase your trust, then take a leap of faith. And do it by sharing information, teaching people the business, getting them out and seeing the rest of the business, seeing how people need to interact with each other, how they affect each other. But take the lead in building their business literacy and their competence and so that they then can take a higher level of responsibility. That's great advice. Well, thank you, Kevin. I know I've learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Now, if our listeners want to connect with you directly, or learn more about the 90-day turnaround, how should they go about doing that? Yeah, two ways to, to reach out to us. One is the 90dayturnaround.com. Um, and the other is just our website, which is ascentmanagement.com, spelled A-S-C-E-N-T-M-G-T, like marygarytom.com. Perfect. And we will be sure to include those links in the show notes. I really appreciate your time and your perspective here. Hopefully our listeners can take your advice and apply it to their own teams. Now, if our listeners would like to bring these kinds of conversations to their organizations, you can visit us at blueswiftconsulting.com to schedule an intro call. Thanks again, Kevin. Thank you.